Hey everyone, and welcome back to Beyond the Boundaries, a group relations podcast sponsored by Group Relations International. I'm back here today with our usual suspects, Lauren Levy. Hello. We got Rod Smith. What's happening, people? And we got Amber Williams. Hey, everyone. What's up, y'all? Surviving. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Uh, We have a special guest here with us today. I'm really excited about that. So I'm actually going to have Amber go ahead and introduce our special guest for today. Yes. So our special guest today is Evangeline Sarda. Evangeline was born in the U.S. to a Filipino and Asian Indian parents. She spent her formative years growing up in Garland, Texas, then moved to Hartsdale and Terrytown, New York from age 10 on. She graduated from Yale in 1984 with a major in English literature and then got her JD from Columbia University in 1991. She began her legal career as one of the first domestic violence prosecutors in Middlesex County, Massachusetts, then became the director of the prosecution clinic at Boston College in 1995, where she continues to teach. Uh, She attended her first GRC in March of 2000, and she's a beloved member and board member of Group Relations International, our sponsor. Uh, So without further ado, welcome Evangeline to Beyond the Boundaries. Thanks so much, Amber. I really appreciate it. And I'm really grateful that you invited me here. Awesome. We're so happy to have you. Um, So without any further ado, we're just going to dive right in. Um, So can you start off by telling the listeners a little bit about your group relations journey and your connection to Group Relations International? Okay. um, All right. So so I started teaching at Boston College uh, in 1995, the law school there. And um, at the time, I've kind of told this story before, so I hope it's not old news to everyone. But at the time, the OJ case was happening. Um, It began like in January of that year, and I was still an assistant district attorney in the Middlesex DA's office, you know, still doing domestic violence work. Um, But the case ended, I believe, in October of that year. And by then, I was teaching at Boston College Law School. When the verdict came down, I happened to be in the DA's office supervising students. Um, And, you know, I still remember it. It's like the whole courthouse shut down to listen to the verdict. It was just one of those moments when it felt like the whole world took a pause. Um, The verdict in that case had an impact on the course I was teaching. You know, first I was teaching prosecutors, but we would always have this uh, joint class called the criminal justice clinic class where defenders, you know, students who were doing defense work were also part of the class. Um, And there were a number of African-American students in the class. And for years after that, there was tension in that class. Um, this was always also a period of time when mass incarceration was in its heyday. Uh, and the issue of race in the criminal justice system was a topic that we took up each semester in the criminal justice clinic. But the way we talked about it, I felt was always problematic. You know, we would often kind of point a finger at a racist actor. It could have been a judge, a police officer, or another attorney. Sometimes we would kind of look at our own racism and you know, what, what would we have done in that case or how might I have thought about it differently? But we rarely looked at like racialized outcomes and thought about it as, um, uh, as a result of all the people within a system kind of contributing to it, right? And in particular, like how were we contributing to racialized outcomes? So I kind of wanted to approach it from a different perspective um, related to how and why our own actions might actually perpetuate 
these dynamics in the criminal justice system. And my husband, Rob Titman, was a fellow at Austin Riggs at the time. And everyone, I don't know if you guys know Austin Riggs, but everyone who's a fellow there gets to go to a group relations conference. It's where Ed Shapiro had um, actually kind of led uh, the organization for a long time. And he came back and he told me like everything that happened from like the moment you entered, who took what chair, the fact that everyone talked about the chairs, how, how consultants talked to them, how the, how everyone talked about the director, just everything <laughs> like from beginning to end, you know, it, it's actually a skill and it's not a skill I have at all, but I was completely fascinated. And, um, and so when I saw this New York conference called Race and Ethnicity in Organizational Life, I just had to attend. I was eight and a half months pregnant at the time with my third child. I was afraid to go alone because I thought I might give birth. Um, but it happened, you know, I learned later that it was Mary McRae's directorial debut. Uh, and uh, my small study group consultant was Kathleen Pogue-White. Mary McRae, Zachary Green, and Deborah Newmare were the large study group consultants. Ty Smith was my uh, RAG consultant. And you know what? I completely imprinted on these people <laughs> who continue to be my mentors and my colleagues. I was completely fascinated. Um, I went to several residential conferences after that, and within two years was teaching it at Boston College Law School. Way before I had a right to teach it, I was probably, you know, there were probably unethical things that I did, you know, when I look back and think about how I learned <laughs> this along the way. But, you know, I just felt like it was so important to bring to law school. And, um, and I, you know, I just never stopped and um, uh, continue to uh, do this work at Boston College, um, you know, really kind of housed there. The way I got involved with Group Relations International is kind of interesting. Um, I had been a member of the Boston Center, CSGSS. They actually asked me to uh, uh, restart up their um, weekend conference uh, to direct a, a series of three conferences. I was quite surprised by this because I was not necessarily totally embraced by the organization. Um, and in the second year, uh, there was one year when actually there were only 11 members and I went forward. And afterwards, the Boston Center looked back and said, how did that happen? And in the next year, they told me that if I didn't have enough people, they would pull their sponsorship. And I just thought, well, you know, it worked quite well with 11 people. And actually, I just want you all to know that um, um, Tavistock, right, uh, the Leicester Conference last um, year had only 11 people. So like, and they still went forward in person um, for two weeks. So um, I really felt like the, the experience was still rich. And so I reached out to Group Relations International who immediately you know, gave their support. And, um, and I never looked back and then just started doing work in the name of Group Relations International, um, whether they wanted me to or not. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, Group Relations International, the, the way they go with the energy and spirit is just, it's been like, you know, fundamental to my own thinking. Anyway, sorry for that long thing, but that's how it all happened. No, that that's good. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. I, you know, when, when you mentioned um, the names that you sat in 
uh, when you had when you went to the conference, you know, I I know those names, I recognize those names, and so it's no surprise that after you were done, shortly after you went off and kind of did your own thing, and so um, you know that speaks a lot because I think when people go to these conferences, it's a life changing event that you no longer sit on your hands and do nothing with what just came out of those conferences with the discovery that just took place. So um, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. Actually, could I just take a moment and say, um, you know, I know that there's a reparations uh, committee now with ACRI and I went to one of their meetings and it just kind of occurred to me at the very end of one of them, um, what one thing that ACRI should repair um, and I'm just going to say it here because I think it's such a great idea. But basically, the people who did the social identity conferences, you know, in the early 2000s, they really raised a generation of people that have come to think about, you know, um, group relations um, in, in a very good way, I think, and very much related to what group relations is all about, but connected to that piece that I think goes unrecognized and is still challenged in you know, a, an organization like ACRI. And, and to really understand how many people were affected by those conferences, I think is very important. So I, I just kind of want to say that somewhere that, that there are a number of people, many of whom I just mentioned, um, who have really raised a generation of group relations folks to understand this in a much more expansive way. Uh, and I really do give them a lot of credit and and homage and honor and everything. And I'm sure they're shaking and their heads nodding right now as they're listening um, to you say that because, you know, they understand that. Um, okay, let me ask the, the next question, right? So given, you know, the experience that you just told us about, your first experience leading all the way up until, you know, last year we get into a year of COVID, where you know everything had to shift for everyone. When we think about the experience of a conference life, um, what was that experience like for you during the era of COVID versus your experience before that? Um, you know, so when I um, thought of this question, I because uh, you know you all gave me the questions beforehand, so that was very helpful to me. So I get to think about it, but. I, all I could think about is what were the opportunities that we gained during this? Um, be, because, you know, that's all I can really think about. Like, I don't mourn a lot about what we might have lost um, during this period. So let me just say first, um, my first online experience during the COVID era was actually a weekend meditation retreat that happened in mid-May. So, you know, we shut down in March and by mid-May I was doing this online meditation retreat. And during that retreat, I quickly learned something about boundaries that I'd never really understood uh, during my group relations experiences. Um, I was doing a loving kindness meditation, and it was just this amazing meditation where like, I could feel my heart grow 10 sizes, just like the Grinch. It just grew and grew and grew, <laughs> and I just felt like you know I was emoting it out and I was receiving. And then I walked out of my room I ran into my husband. We had a brief conversation. And before I knew it, I was just like yelling at him and <laughs> filled with anger. And I just thought like, wait, you know, I just I just did this amazing loving kindness thing. And, you know, and what just happened? And it really made me think a lot about how bounded spaces can be 
Mm. And how bounded like a group relations conference really is, even when it's a weekend, right? That mm. it is so bounded and that a lot can happen in kind of this small space. Um, when you shift out of it, it's a completely different space. Yeah. Um, so it really led me to, to think about the spaces we create in group relations conferences differently. It, it, you know, it actually made me question um, if what we were doing is real, right? You know, I mean, I, I believe it's, we, it is real, but it just made me question it. And it also kind of made me think about, you know, how you kind of move in and out of the space of group, a group relations conference and back into real life, right? Mm. Um, without having any transitional space. So, so that online experience really um, made me question or think about boundaries differently and, and what we create. And I then immediately took up every opportunity to be on a, a member at a group relations conference. Um, you know, the first one was the Opus conference, which I think was called Spaces, Space. Faces, spaces, something like that, um, on and on. Um, and I just want to say something about this Opus conference too, right? Because, you know, when I when I go to conferences, I throw myself into it. I just, you know, uh, to my own demise. Credit. <laughs> 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 I've gotten better. I think smarter at holding myself back a little bit. But in that conference, only people who had had staff roles were allowed to participate. And you know. Now, as I think about it, maybe it was because there was some anxiety around the regression and the projections and, you know, could people handle it and stuff like that. Um, but and, and maybe that's why they limited the experience, you know, to experienced people. But what I felt was that um, what I felt when I got there was that, oh, my God, these people are so retentive and, you know, that people just were not willing to be free with their emotions. They weren't really willing to regress and do these things that we ask members to do. And, you know, and maybe it was related um, to being online and all the fear around that. But I started thinking of that as a cop out. You know, I think when we started doing conferences online, we realized how much we blame technology for for what might be our own shortcomings. And I really felt that the reason why people were holding back was less about fear of being online um, but actually more related to what might happen to you the more you do staff work, right? That we kind of, um, that there's a certain way that we can have emotions as staff, but we don't let ourselves really connect to what members do, right? That that we ask members to expose themselves and to like do these things for, like in front of our eyes, but we we're so unwilling to do it. Um, and to fully step into the same space that we create to members. Um, you know, it gave me even more compassion for members, but it also, I think, made me feel um, a little bit how problematic, um, you know, the split is between staff and members. Um, you know, so I, 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 what I didn't want to say is it made me feel like a little contemptuous about us, but but I did. I felt like, look, you know, we, we need to be able to be in these spaces too. And if we can't, then why do we think members should do anything different? Um, that's one of the, so that's yeah. what I say, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about you, Evangeline, because I feel like I've also noticed that even in my short time in group relations and like starting to work on staff more frequently is that there is like a level where almost like 
the hypotheses that we used to see as hypotheses now are almost deemed as like fact. And like, if you're not seeing it how I'm seeing it, then you're just not seeing it. And it's like this arrogance almost that I see among some of the elders. Um, and like, I know like you love to play in conference spaces on staff and in membership. And like, that could rub people the wrong way and stuff. But like, I so appreciate it because I feel like you're never afraid to put yourself back inside the member role. You're never afraid to like try something out and be wrong. Like you're never afraid to like, be one in the space. And I feel like that's something that I aspire to hold on to as I continue on my group relations journey mm. too. It's like never lose sight of what it's like to be the learner. And I feel like I recently heard some of the older mentors that I had be like, oh, I have to see myself as a learner again. And I'm like, well, what happened in that time where you didn't see yourself as that? Because we're always learning, we're always growing. So I just wanted to like elevate that and like not let it go by that. Yes, like I appreciate you so much for being able to not detach yourself from that, no matter how long you've been doing this work. So. Well, not only that, but, you know, like we say that this is about the unconscious. Right. And um, and yet I think we're so afraid of the unconscious. The unconscious comes to us through our enactments, which is why I, I, I think play is good, because it's kind of a, a safe way of enacting something and you can say oh but it was just play but actually it's play in in service of something right, right? so it, it gives us a little bit of space but a little bit to move freely and if we're afraid to enact things as staff then like in some ways i feel like we have no business working with the unconscious because that's where that's where we get the access to it so you know a lot of these things yeah i agree with you they, i i find, sometimes feel it's a little bit hypocritical of us um you know, so, um, so thank you, Amber. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Evangeline, as I'm listening to you speak, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, something really opened up in this uh, virtual space uh, around uh, boundaries in particular and, and the boundaries that we put on ourselves in our respective roles, um, whether we're staff or members. And um, Amber, what you brought into uh, the conversation around that being that continuous learner. Uh, so it, it really does strike me as being one of those things that was a, a, a really big gain, you know, during this time of COVID and being in this online environment. Um, I know earlier I caught you said that you don't spend a lot of time thinking about the losses, but I'm, I'm curious if maybe some of the losses that we experienced were actually a relook at some of our traditional pieces right, to move us closer in, in, into the future and where we're trying to go and the excitement that I hear you speaking to around moving with the spirit. So, um, I, so I'm going to do like a little bit of a re-attack with a slightly different focus, <laughs> you know. Here we go. Around, uh, around some of the gains and some of the losses and that, you know, maybe looking at it, a loss is like not something that we was something negative, but like a loss is in terms of a gain. So I'm wondering if you have any more to say about that. Okay. So uh, I'm going to do the same thing, right, about why this gain, what is lost in this gain? Because the first thing I wanted to say about that was um, one of the biggest gains for me was that social dreaming just exploded everywhere, right? And that was really cool. And I took a lot of opportunities early on to join all these different social dreaming matrices. Um, now, they were dominated by European participants, but there were still people, you know, in South, Af uh, South America, South Africa, India, China, right? And the dreams were amazing. 
all these dreams were just amazing. But the associations were also kind of important to hear. And, and that's what kind of really struck me is that the associations, um, you know, sometimes would reveal like the difference between being male and female. Um, no one, you know, people didn't kind of uh, talk about other genders, but, but you could sometimes see the male and female perspective, particularly older people, right? But even more so, there were associations that I felt were really tied to like the Western world and Western concerns. And I began to think, because right when you had a dream, then there'd be all these associations and the associations would sometimes construct the reality around the dream, right? Um, it would affect how other people <laughs> associated to it. And, um, and, and it kind of gave you, started making you think about a, a dream in a particular way. Um, and of course, you know, it's, and so what you, what I started feeling like was that you could see how many of the dreams were, uh, or how many of the associations were kind of based on your location and your culture, right? So, so like if a tree were in a dream, the trees in your neighborhood were the trees that you thought about. And, you know, not everyone had the same trees, like in South America and in India and everywhere. So what I started kind of feeling was that the Europe, um, the Western, okay, they were mainly older people, Western world, European, uh, US as well. And also maybe people who were, had done a lot of social dreaming work, but man, they were like, they were dark <laughs> and they were more negative in, in nature. And some of these dreams just were kind of more exciting. Even when they were scary, they were kind of more exciting. But, the, but so many of the associations were kind of dark. Um, so I just, um, I just kind of, uh, that was yet another thing, right? That made me think about like what, I, what was gained was I got to really see how much of our work and maybe theory and ways of interpreting what's happening is kind of based in a more Western um, perspective. And of course we know that, but, um, but you know, it just became clearer, right? So, so, so one, again, I loved having access to that. Um, and I guess just generally all of the access that we got to have, right? So I wouldn't have gone to all this conference in Opus. I got to go to a conference in South America, you know, with all these South Americans, you know, I would never have been able to do that. I did the activism and spirituality conference. I would never have flown out, you know, just for a weekend to, to you know, San Diego or to the West Coast. And then the white supremacy conference. Like these are things that I couldn't have done like four or five conferences, you know, that easily if, if it just hadn't been accessible. And then just getting all these different perspectives. And each one of those was like a nugget, right? You just, every time you do it, uh, and I was a member in all of them. You just would get this nugget. So I, and, and each time I just felt like um, there were things I learned about the theory, you know, like a, a ton. So, so I don't know. I just, I feel like uh, what COVID gave us was something about reality. Like, look, people now do work online. All these organizations have been doing work online for a long time, and now they're really doing it even more. And we need to adapt. This is like, this is organizational life. So I just feel like, there, there, there were many, many more opportunities. Um, okay, so then the loss, is, the loss might be around our, um, you know, our valorizing so much the Western world. I mean, you know, there's also a loss because <laughs> um, uh, there's a yeah.
you have to think differently. Um, um, a lot of, I guess, our theory, you know, when you translate it, like boundaries, for instance, in other cultures, it's a totally different way of thinking about boundaries. So, and even uh, group, um, even group identity, right? It's really different in different cultures. And so that is both an opportunity, but then, you know, leads to, can lead to a lot of anxiety, can lead to a fear of like not really knowing what's going on, maybe having to negotiate too many possible interpretations. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are, maybe that's a way of kind of linking in the loss, but I quite frankly just don't see the law. I mean, there is some loss, but I don't, because you know, we're going to go back, right? We're going to go back and then we're going to have two options. So, and more. So, you know, one of, one of the things I find really exciting about what you just shared there, uh, Evangeline, was that, you know, something about this accessibility, and, and the accessibility showing up in the context of, uh, you know, kind of relooking at how dark maybe our Western perspective of the unconscious might be. And that maybe Whoosh. there might be another you know, sort of like light element to it that we can incorporate to balance out our perspective in life and just in, in general to complete this theory that we call group relations. I'm fascinated. I could definitely listen to you talk about this uh, all day, but uh, I, I think we're on something of a time schedule today. So uh, <laughs> turn it back over to Lauren here. Well, actually, this is actually the, the midway point through our questions. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to lead us in, but to turn the mic back to Evangeline. Um, so what we usually like to do with our guests as our second guest, the thing we did with our one other guest, um, <laughs> is to offer you an opportunity to, I guess, like ask us something um, either related to this topic or to our dynamic or I guess whatever. So this is kind of your opportunity to not just be interviewed, but to, to also share what you might want to ask us. You can host the show now, man. <laughs> the, the interlude. <laughs> I, I guess I would just ask you the same questions. You know, like what? Um, what did you? I guess what did you lose, maybe, uh, or what was lost in this transition from your perspective? Um, because maybe you can answer that better than me. <laughs> yeah, I have a thought on that. I think for me, I totally. I totally feel you, Evangeline, on feeling like a lot was gained that we can take forward um, from this transition into a more virtual space. I think for me, something that was lost that I kind of miss, and maybe it's only my experience, but from a group perspective, probably not, is I found it a lot harder to uh, build sustainable community in the same sense. And I think we talk a lot in group spaces is like when the group ends, the group ends. There's not an expectation that it will continue beyond. And yet, for me personally, I feel like I've met so many people while doing this work that have, you know, led to really enriching long term connections for me. And I think in all of the virtual spaces that I've been in over the last year and a half, or however long it's been now, I don't feel like I've picked up sustainable connections in the same way as I feel like I would have or may have in more face-to-face experiences. And maybe that's just the the lens through which I'm looking, you know, a little bit of my valence coming up 
and my current personal longing for more community just in general. But um, for me, that's something that I'm definitely looking forward to as we go back into more hybrid models um, and the opportunity to be back in spaces with other humans. That feels really exciting to me in a way where the virtual just can't quite tap into that for me. So. Yeah, that's real, Lauren. Um, I think for me, um, and I might have shared this with you, Evangeline, working on staff with you a couple of times um, for your conferences, is that, um, which I don't know if it's like, a, it's probably like a thing that was gained, but also lost kind of to your point of like nothing being black and white, but like the ability to be like in sweatpants on my bottom, but like button downs on my top and like have a blanket and like go to my kitchen and make my tea whenever we have those five minute breaks and stuff like that, actually like, and being in a room by myself, even though I'm sharing a screen with 50 people, right. Gave me this like sense of, I guess, calm and clarity because like, as we talk about in group relations, there's like the anxiety and the disequilibrium that like helps us like do things. But like, there's like the unhealthy side of it where it's like, you're, nervous system is out of control and then it's like you're too calm so like finding that middle ground and i think i found myself more between like the too calm in the middle ground versus in a typical conference space it's like the over like overworked nervous system in the middle ground um which personally at least from a consulting stance i think actually added a lot more clarity um and like pace to my consultations as someone that's still newer um, being on staffs and such. Um, and like, I think when I'm in a space with eight other people or like when I've done large group with 30 to 50 other people, it's like so much crap is being thrown at us at all times and like being that receptacle, but then still sifting through it and figuring out like what actually will help this group move forward in this process was a lot more chaotic in person, I think internally um, than what it, what I felt as it was uh, working on online staffs. But then I also questioned like, well, these are now my, I think fourth, third, fourth, fifth staffs or maybe fourth, fifth, sixth staffs, um, the three virtual ones that I was on. So maybe I'm also feeling more confident in my consulting stance in general. <laughs> um, so I, I don't have anything I guess to compare it to until I do a staff um, outside of the virtual realm. But I think that that was something that's like, oh, I miss kind of that, like literally feeling the energy popping off of the person next to me, but also like how disruptive that energy can be in my task um, as well, but also knowing that that energy is data. Um, so it's kind of like this double dutch of like, well, is it better? Is it worse? Is it better? Is it worse? Um, but I do feel like that's a big difference and I guess a loss and a gain um, to some degree, at least for me. Going off of yeah. that. Oh, sorry, Brad. Go for it. That's okay. I was just going to say going off of that in prepping for an upcoming conference that I'm admin, I'm on the admin team for, for two, uh, 2022, a big conversation came up about privileges and how um, in a hybrid model, the membership might feel very jealous of um, staff who got to be in person if the membership did not. But to Amber's point, it's like there's there's privileges on both sides of the coin, right? Like Amber's talking about how they get to sit and be in their PJs and have the calming sort of thing that I can relate to, too, when you are, you know, staying at home and not being able to connect in person and feel that buzzy energy off the person next to you. And it is, I think, the more complex 
holding of what this is all about to say, as Evangeline, you've brought up, that it's a lot of gain and some loss, but there is, you know, privileges on both sides of the coin. Go ahead, Rod. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. It's all good. The dynamic duos in effect. It's all good. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, the the loss came in uh, just not getting hugs. No hugs. You know, I, I miss that. Um, but I think the gain, though, in not getting that was that I had to access different parts of myself, you know, to that I otherwise would not have uh, uh, really been cognizant of, you know, in a physical space. I probably would have taken it for granted. Uh, so like yourself, you know, as you mentioned, I was able to be a part of like so many more conferences this year than I had ever thought about being in, whether on staff or as a member. And even in how I ran my class over Zoom last year, uh, which had some group relations elements to it, um, I found myself really having to access different parts of myself to understand what was going on in the system. And uh, for me, it brought me into more of a soul-centric type space um, where I paid a lot more attention to, you know, the histories that were being called up. And that just really jazzed, you know, my uh, curiosity about like how the histories were being reenacted you know, in a different space or in a particular conversation. Um, and so for me, you know, my, I would say that it impacted how I developed, you know, my hypotheses and, you know, what I, like you were sharing, Amber, my uh, pace with uh, my consultations and, oh, okay, I see where that's going. And um, yeah, and so I just gained a lot also, I guess, in the appreciation of just being able to talk with uh, folks from literally around the world and, and to have a, like that real experience of, oh, wait a minute, I'm all wide-eyed, bushy-tailed in the morning, and folks around the world are like, I'm up in the middle of the night for this. So to the point about the U.S.-centric component of this, uh, it really gave me a really deep appreciation, which had me thinking in more global terms, you know, international, international from the perspective of the U.S., but thinking in more global terms about um, what group relations could be and uh, and what it is and we're, what, what future we're creating around that. Yeah, there's one thing I wanted to add to that, um, what you said, Rod, and also Lauren, what you said brought up for me was that um, around privileges, but also thinking about like, thinking outside myself basically, like, oh, I'm, you know, at home by myself with my tea and my blanket, right? But then I think specifically eventually at our the first conference that I worked with you on, um, I had someone in my small group and they were like, my kids are right outside the door. My husband's right outside the door. Like, I like so reserved. Like, it took like so much to like get something out of them because of that anxiety of like their home environment. And so I think something that was lost in being at home is that like losing some member authenticity and some member freedom that I think we always say group relations conferences are the place that you can get away from your everyday life and try something new and be vulnerable. And then you choose to take back what you want or what you don't want. And that's your business. But in people's homes, depending on their you know circumstances and who's in their house with them, um, they don't feel that same escape 
um, you know, being in their in their house. So that's something that I definitely have thought a lot more about. And also it's like, well, if I had kids, how many of these conferences would I be doing as well? You know, or like if, you know, I had a partner at home with me during the day, like how vulnerable would I be able to be in these staff meetings as well? So um, that's something that I do think was lost um, in this whole process of being online. And, you, you know, I think, um, first of all, Amber, you, you hit it perfectly in the experience that I'm going to share. And I think, Evangeline, like this kind of ties back to what you initially talked about with um, working on staff, you know, at the conference and how folks couldn't really like, you know, when they were virtually online, they really couldn't be authentic. They couldn't give themselves fully. You know, I think that was something that could be shared amongst members and um, uh, staff. And, you know, for me, my loss last year was not being able to go to any conferences in, in person. Um, the gain was getting an, uh, an opportunity to be a consultant for a conference um, that was for undergrads um, at Morgan State University. And having that experience opened up so much for me to what Amber just talked about in terms of boundaries and how we show up virtually, you know, in these spaces to try to do this work. And if you're a member and, you know, you're like under your blanket with your PJs on, like that mentally changes the boundaries for me. I show up differently because I know like I'm, I'm dressed like that. I'm a little bit more comfortable. And I think that's what's lost, you know, whereas when you're in person, you can get out of one room and go you know, into the next, like they virtually, you just get a break. Maybe you walk around the room in your house, but I think having a little bit of that separation is helpful. Right. And that was the part, um, Evangeline, when you said, when you left the conference, you went to your husband, you immediately, like you got into an argument. And that to me talks about, like you said, the boundaries, the spaces that we're in, how are we setting those spaces up virtually? How are you like all those things, unconsciously make a difference in terms of how we actually do show up. And so I think that was the biggest challenge and it takes so much energy. I can tell you right now, doing these podcasts for me takes so much energy in the preparation, right? I got to get my computers together. I, I got to go through sound checks. Like there's so much that it takes to come mentally, you know, prepared and ready to do this thing. So when you have a crying kid in the background or, you know, that's, that's not helpful for, for your process. So I think that's where the loss is at, is that how members show up and what they're able to actually offer gets limited with these boundaries that they may or may not even be setting. And I think that's what's important. Yeah, so this is what's coming to mind. Um, so first of all, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Manny, but um, I guess I have this question about how, you know, who is allowed really to split their home life off from their uh, work life and that some people really can do that a lot more than others. And in some ways, I feel like, again, when you bring it into the home, it just shows you. Really, because look, a mother, she goes off to work, but the minute that child has to be picked up because they're sick at school, like who ends up doing it? Right. And I'm not saying that mothers all do it, but you know what? It's just like it, it just really invades. And, and one of the things I began to wonder about is because I do think that intimacy is lost, you know, like like 
the hug piece, like yeah. really hugging a body. And actually, when you say goodbye, not just having them disappear into the, you know, the thin blue air, which <laughs> happens online, but, you know, this conversation is making me wonder who, who gets to have intimacy more and do, you know, do people of color actually, who, who I think do get so filled up, maybe more so than, um, and, uh, I mean, percentage wise, maybe more so than um, I'll just say white people. Um, you know, maybe it is, uh, no, because I, I think, you know, I, I just think of these things as open, you know, people are just allowed to feel intimacy more. And so I don't, although I do get very close to people and I love that piece, um, one of the things that people talk about is a major loss is, is not having the in-between spaces, you know, the chat, being just having coffee and chatting and how much learning takes place. Well, that isn't the space where I actually learn. And I actually often find myself alone or, or I just go and, you know, chat and, and I like it, but it's not a learning space for me. It is a different space. And so it's just made me wonder, like, who actually gets to have that space? as where they get to learn more versus having to respond even more, right? Or, or whatever, you know, so, so I, right. it just makes me wonder, um, you know, and, and so I do feel like, uh, I do feel like when I'm home, I get a little more space and, and I don't, I get filled up with what needs to be filled up, but not about 15 things or something, right? And, and that is helpful. And and is are you saying that now, you know, in your life versus maybe at the time that you you put on your first conference back in the day? Uh, it certainly is easier. You know, there's so much you have to do. OK, wait, let me just say this one thing. What I really miss is the administrators. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It is. It's like having to set up my computer and have to get my own coffee versus like having someone. Mm. That's really major. And again, and it makes you realize how important administrators are. Like what they do to enable you know they're the ones actually who give you your pajamas in a way. That's really the feeling, right? It's so <laughs> important. The kind of holding. Okay. That's um, what I've been doing my whole career, and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 Giving out pajamas now. Well, Evangeline, I think that is a perfect segue to our next question. Um, what you were talking about, about who has the ability to have more intimacy, who gets the extra space, um, who has access, who doesn't. Um, and just knowing you and experiencing you in group relations spaces, I know that you're such an advocate for actually in ways, in part, I guess, stepping away from this lens that you were talking about that focuses so much on the Western way of thinking. Um, and I think because we're in the United States, at least speaking for myself, what happened here over the last year, year and a half, um, does become so inundated into our microcosm spaces of group relations as well. And I'm curious from your perspective, as we've experienced again in the United States, but of course then at the world in the world at large, 
as like George Floyd and all these other um, social justice issues are coming to the masses and conversations about Asian folks and how they're being erased from the conversation are now something that maybe your next door neighbor is talking about when before that they were ignoring these conversations um, in denial about, as you were saying earlier, their role in contributing to perpetuating these sort of um, ways of living, uh, societal structures. How has that and also the universal kind of dip in mental health, this like global depression, I guess I'll be so bold as to say, that's kind of taken over as we've turned to a virtual world that lacks this intimacy. How have those things being brought to the forefront in kind of a way that at least in my lifetime is new to me? I don't know if that's true for you as well. How has that shifted the way in which we are taking up group relations work? How is that shifting group relations conference life? And what do you think are the gains and losses as we've been talking about um, that come um, with these So shifts. I think it's had a great impact on uh, the group relations world uh, from my perspective. Um, you know, being able just to say white supremacy and not having to apologize or having to tiptoe around it or find different words to say. And I still say, I, I often still say white promoting instead of just you know, white supremacy because, you know, you're always tiptoeing around these things. Mm. I love just being able to say it now. And then, you know, I just, so I just got off of, uh, came, came back from Belgerate. <laughs> um, but I gave a talk on critical race theory and group relations. Um, it was well received. I, I actually w was surprised in many ways, but I think it's partly because everyone is now interested in it. And, you know, and even though there's so much backlash against critical race theory right now, the minute Trump, you know, basically said, uh, you know, put out his executive order banning diversity training. Um, now everyone is hearing about it. Like mm -hmm. it's been around for, you know, a while, but, but people never thought about it. I think it's very scary because there's so much legislation right now in states. You know, I think at least eight states have already passed legislation banning it in some form. Um, it, you know, it's going to uh, 20 more states. I mean, there are just a bunch of states like already having legislation forward, you know, the, 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 uh, some of the ra races that were just decided on Tuesday were based on people being anti-critical race theory. So, um, so on the one hand, I think it's so cool that people actually are hearing about it because, you know, but on the other hand, I think this has a direct impact on organizations like ACRI, you know, um, one of the things I said at Belgerate was that when he, I was actually in a diversity and inclusion um, training at Georgetown. And when that um, executive order came down, we lost a person who was in the armed forces because he wasn't allowed to come. Like it had a direct impact. And if that starts going towards, you know, funding for colleges and universities, like it, it could really have this like huge effect, right? So I, we shouldn't be taking it lightly. At the same time, I think all of this stuff enables us to talk about it, you know, um, enables us to have a white supremacy conference, enables us to just um, speak to it openly. And actually all those uh, mm -hmm. emails that I've been writing, you know, <laughs> it's really been from like thinking now it's yeah. okay 
let's just talk, you know, it's all critical race theory stuff, actually. I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm realizing now I'm like, oh, that's why I think this way. It's because I, there's where I got it, but it's, it's just, it enables us to talk about it. And now I can do it knowing that, um, that I know I'm setting myself up, you know, I'm doing it very carefully, but I know people agree with me. Right. And I know some people will listen. And I don't think I would ever have done it, you know, just three years ago. I think it's really because we're allowed to speak now um, in a way that we just couldn't do it as freely before. So I hate to say it, but it is, yeah, there we there are some heroes in our lives that have opened up things, um, tragedy and then an opening. And I won't say, I don't, I'm not going to say more than that because I don't want to articulate it, but, mm-hmm. um, well, it sounds like Evangeline for you, you're saying that these horrible tragedies have led to the opportunity for a new way of being able to speak truths, giving space for other voices to come forward and be authentic in a way that it didn't feel safe to be authentic before. Like even earlier in this conversation, you kind of like whispered the whites, you know, like, you know, so it's like, it's still there. But what I'm hearing you say is now you can come forward and you feel confident that people get what you're saying. They want to hear what you're saying. And there's people out there that agree with you. And Again, my experience of you is you're someone who is courageous and bold in your presentation and you say things other people are not willing to say, but as you're mentioning, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist within the group. Um, you're just the one or one of the ones that's willing to like bring it forward. Um, well, I, I just want to say something. So what I, one of the things that. I really do like about critical race theory also is that they're really not uh, focused on individuals who are racist. It, they're just not the system is racist. So like, I I don't necessarily blame white people. Right. Um, it's, it, it, there is a white preference that's kind of embedded Mm -hmm. in, in, in our laws in particular. So, um, so it's really a systemic thing. And I think what's so great about critical race theory and group relations is to me, critical race theory kind of gives us the application that we keep searching for. Right. Because it's always linked to, um, the system, but based on the individual experience, right? Based on tracking what happens to individuals, linking it then to the system. And, and so it's always, it's this great space for application and just really good synergy, I think, between the two. I want to pass around a collection plate because I feel like I'm at church and I appreciate you nourishing my soul in that way, Evangeline. But I would like to talk more to you about that link because, yes, that seems spot on to me. um, And I haven't taken the time as much, I think, post my academic career to really dive more into CRT. But that that was really beautifully put. Um, I was up to to share my next question, but I think, like you said, it kind of got covered in some of the earlier ones. So I'm just going to pass it off to Manny um, for our last question, actually. Yeah, actually, I'm sorry, but Evangeline, I have to kind of go back a little bit and and kind of talk to you about CRT. I I do want to pick at it a little bit because I'm curious. I had a a conversation um, with a family member who is working at a university over in the East region. Of, of the United States, and um, they had 
told me that CRT should not exist as a theory in the in in the in the academic world and most certainly not um, in the professional world. And so, because what's happening is his experience is that um, you know white people are kind of coming up to him and basically trying to apologize, you know, for their own um, privileges. And so he was frustrated with that because he's like, how, how they're internalizing CRT and then how they then go about it after, how does that have anything to do with the job that I'm here to get done with this person? And so I know when we ask that question for me, I'm like, okay, you go to a conference to figure that out for sure. Um, but is there a point there? And then so, so for the folks who have been dealing with um, white privilege and white supremacy, you know, on the other side of it, when CRT is put out and these folks engage with it, what is the backlash? What, what happens? How should we prepare for that? How, how is that conversation with folks that come and put their privilege in front of you even more? You know, I guess what I, let's see. What I might say is that um, what CRT exposes is actually, it, it's first of all, it's really based in law, right? That's how it started. It, it began in the legal academy and, um, and it began at a time when, uh, when the law was kind of seen as being very objective, neutral, uh, in, in its way, rational and fair. And that basically when you came, when you made a decision, there was really only one right decision. Right. And you made it. And therefore, subsequent decisions would be based on that line of, of decision making. Right. Um, and what CRT. Well, first of all, there was a critical legal studies, which was more of a like um, leftist thing that, that preceded CRT. Um, and CRT came in because they they gravitated towards this critical legal studies, which began questioning whether law was objective, whether it was neutral, whether it was fair, and whether it was determinative, right? Like, is there only one way to, to answer this question? And, and critical legal studies started saying, no, actually, you can answer both ways. And, you know, basically, depending on what's getting argued and, and what facts you decide you're going to focus on, actually, there can be different outcomes. And critical legal studies was, was actually much more disruptive, you know, because they kind of wanted to overturn you know, in some ways disrupt law and the stability, what, what law offered as in terms of stability. But what started happening, first of all, is that there are no people of color in the, in the legal academy when critical legal studies first came up. But as more and more came in, they gravitated towards critical legal studies, but felt like it had nothing, you know, where's the racial thing? Where's the racial piece? What about all this stuff? Like it didn't pay any attention. So when they started focusing on kind of racialized consequences, they didn't actually want to get rid of law at all. They felt like it was an important tool, even within the consciousness of, of um, people of color, like that it was really important for people of color to begin thinking they had a right to these rights, right? Um, so they stuck with this idea that law is not objective, it's not neutral, it may not be fair. It's not actually fair. Right. Um, and instead that you need to start looking at the evidence of its impact on the population. And if it turns out that it is impacting certain people more than others, then you need to start kind of thinking like this isn't, a you know, instead of assuming it was objective and these people are just bad or they're just like, you know, 
they, they live their lives wrong, that there's something comp- wrong, there's something problematic about the law. And then what they also did was they traced it from the beginning, right? That in our constitution, right, as you all know, slaves were three-fifths of people. That in this land where we, you know, believe in the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that that certain people were only three-fifths. And that was embedded in our laws. And there were many, there were other aspects actually of the constitution where you can find kind of like pro-slavery stuff. Um, and then when you track our laws, like from the 1800s on, and how they litigated whiteness, right? Uh, because in the beginning, you had to be white in order to be a citizen. But how they started determining, well, who was white and who wasn't white, right? And how complicated that was. And actually, sometimes an Armenian would be white here, but they wouldn't be white over here. Or, you know, um, an Asian person might be white or not white. Like, it, it got litigated. And that through the laws, we actually um, constructed race. And then also it affected even how we interacted with each other, right? Because the minute you think a law is true, true and neutral and, and moral, then you think that that's the right thing. And just remember, so when, when, um, when uh, cause I was a prosecutor during the days when um, marijuana was illegal, was a crime, right? And my students would like, you'd have like this tiny little bud in your car. You'd go away for jail, right? Now you can't put anyone away. <laughs> now, like now it's, it's, it's decriminalized in many places and, and you don't go away. And now people, now most of my students don't even want to give someone who's got like a ton of meth, you know, put them in jail. Like just 10, 15 years ago, you know, you would send everyone to jail, my students, right, so, as prosecutors. So so the way the law is um, constructed or put together really impacts what we think is right and wrong, what we think is moral. And so that's what critical race theory is saying, is that we have kind of constructed these systems that uh, that have then impacted our ability to think about race in any other way, and also even how we relate to each other, you know, based on race. And and it, and it's so kind of um, subconscious, right? Uh, that we don't we we aren't able to then track how it all happens. So this is why um, when you talk to them, they're kind of the fun they're the funniest people because like when they're talking about their thing, they're like all passionate and everything. But there's some and they they. They also feel like um, we're never going to make it right, you know, that that this is too entrenched in our work. And yet they are incredibly optimistic people. (laughs) I mean, it's just this funny thing. And they're also very giving and gracious. Like, it's just amazing that, you know, they're not like angry, rabid people. They just do their work. And they, they study and they kind of make these links. So it's unfortunate that it has kind of taken this other thing. And I think part of it is because when it gets translated into, you know, being in, um, in sixth grade or something, it gets watered down to, to principles that aren't really what CRT might be about, but then get considered to be that. Um, and having had my own kids go through some of that, right, I, I, I'm i like, I don't think you got, I mean, I shouldn't say that, but I often felt like to these teachers, do you really know what you're talking about? Or is this just like, you know, are you really getting d- deep into um, this issue? Or are you just kind of like at this surface level saying you can't say that, right? Which is not something we would do in group relations. Um, we would actually go to the issue 
and, and confront it rather than say there are things we're not allowed to say. So this is where I feel like CRT really gets a bad rap because um, it, they really don't kind of talk about individuals as being racist. They, they really talk about how we've come under so many years of racialized thinking that are embedded in so many of our systems. Um, and, you know, digging ourselves out of it is going to take a very long time. I don't know if that helps, right? It's a long answer <laughs> to your question. No, that's, that's helpful. You know, I think a lot, a lot of folks will interpret that and take what they will out of it, you know, I think. But I thank you for that clarity and kind of walking us through that um, timeline as well. Um, the, okay, so the other question I do want to actually ask is, what would you like to see more in group relation spaces moving into a post-COVID era or at least a return to face-to-face -face conferences? What would you like to see less of also? So I, you know, there's, there's the traditional stance, right? And I think we all have in our minds an idea of what that traditional stance is, which is like, you know, no expression, speaking as if you're speaking from the unconscious, um, with no expression, um, uh, not actually linking to individuals, you know, um, uh, not not linking the individual to the system. Anyway, I guess what I'd say is like, I would really like us to question all of our tenets and look at how we practice and connect the two. Because I think that um, I do feel there are a lot of like hypocritical things we do. So for one, for instance, right? Staff members should be members. If we really think we're doing this for members and all the learning is in that space, why aren't we members? And you know what? If mm. right to work, if you I don't I have comp I have issues with right to work, but if you want right to work, you should be a member every two years. You should like we should all be members. Um, and that's where I feel like there's a little bit of hypocrisy, right? Because we do this just for members. I think I I question that. I um it, it there's there's too much space there and almost every aspect of what we do i would like to kind of question and have conversations about what is small group really about you know what is large group really about does anyone know what the ie is about right <laughs> and how many different perspectives do we have on that um um yeah I, I guess i just would uh yeah like us to really think about what we're doing more that's fair. That's fair. Thank you. Okay. So I think we're just about at our closing time boundary. And I think this has been incredible, Evangeline. It's so nice to have you on and to get your perspective on all of this and to weave in your background in law um, and some of the really cool experiences that you've had. This knowledge set is a lot of new info to me. So I'm excited to have learned more about it. Um, I don't know if anyone, Evangeline, or any of the rest of y'all have any closing thoughts, questions that you want to throw into the space um, before we wrap up. This, uh, this was a healthy conversation. I, Evangeline, I just want to thank you for your time um, coming here with us and um, sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience with us. It's been very exciting um and invigorating so i'm i'm, ex I'm excited because i do have a conference coming up that i'll be working also uh in 2022 so 
um, this was kind of really what I needed to hear uh, prior to getting ready for that. Well, thank you all. I really appreciate it. I, I was a little bit afraid, but it was really fun. You made it uh, fun and also, um, you know, uh, less scary than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my question. It wasn't that scary, but I'm glad that you felt like it wasn't. <laughs> That's that virtual hug kicking in. <laughs> right. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing this on behalf of GRI. I think it's fantastic. Of course. Appreciate it. Well, thank you again, Evangeline, for being here. Crew, team, awesome job. Love you all. Um, I think that wraps us up for today. So thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Boundaries, a group relations podcast sponsored by Group Relations International. And we will see you next time. Bye. Peace. Peace.